0: Good morning, family. So great to be with you today. I wonder if you can, in your Bibles, go to the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a device, it's quite easy. You just scroll till you find it. It's roundabout about Psalms, uh, Lamentations. If you found Lamentations, you've gone to the darker side of it. Go back to Ecclesiastes and um, find that space. If you've got a printed Bible, if you're so privileged to have that, I think it's sort of in the middle of the Bible, but on the Old Testament side, obviously, uh, and uh, let's go to Ecclesiastes. And uh, there's a well-known scripture in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9. And I'm just going to use th- uh, three verses out of this chapter today. Um, and the verse in Ecclesiastes 4, verse 9, that is probably familiar to many of us. Uh, even if you're not that familiar with the scripture, this is a, a sort of a, a scripture that is founded into our culture sometimes. It's just this idea, two are better than one. Two are better than one. Than one. Now, I want to remind you that when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we're reading what is termed wisdom literature in the Scripture. The Bible has a number of genres, different ways that it is written. The whole of the Scripture is God-breathed and God-inspired and is the Word of God. But He did it in different ways through different types of Scripture. This is what we would call part of the wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs is wisdom literature. Uh, Solomon loved gathering wisdom, and so the book of Proverbs is this gathering of wisdom sayings and, and just people's thinking about how to live life and how to live life successfully that he compiled, and he made this fantastic book of sayings that we could say would be generally true in life. Every one of the Proverbs, sayings of the Proverbs, aren't necessarily always what happens in life, but they would be generally true of life in different experiences. It's important that we know that. Because sometimes if we treat a book of the Bible like the book of Proverbs in the wrong way, we are actually not appropriately engaging with that material. Because sometimes what people do, for instance, with the book of Proverbs, is they'll want to make it statements that are promises or absolute truths. One of the famous ones, for instance, is if you raise a child in the way they should go, when they're old, they will not depart from it. Now, if you understand that that is in wisdom literature, you know that that is Solomon making a statement about life and how it generally works. And I think we can all agree with that that generally it works that if you raise a child right, they will sustain and keep on that path for the rest of their lives. But how many of you know it's not always true? So what some people do is they take a statement like that and they make it a promise. They say, this is a promise of God that if you raise your child right, they will never depart from it. And then we get into trouble. Because how many of us know that Good parents can sometimes have children that take a bit of a walkabout. And you sometimes have good children with parents that aren't that great. And generally true in life that if you raise children right, they'll stay with it, but it doesn't always work that way. It's wisdom. It's wisdom to treat your children, to teach them the right things from from when they're small. But we can't say to somebody, hmm, there must be something wrong with you because your child has gone off the rails a little bit. Didn't you train them right? You can't do that because it's, that's not what that scripture is intended for. The book of Ecclesiastes go into that kind of general category of what Solomon is doing is he's thinking about life. He's thinking about how do you live life? How, how, what are the general principles of life? and he observes things, and he writes and records some of his experiences. And so here in Ecclesiastes 4, he's writing for us, recording for us some of the observations and experiences about this idea that two are better than one. Now, I don't think this is a revolutionary idea or a unique idea, two are better than one. I think it's the kind of idea that we would all agree with, that we would all know in some way that it is generally true of life that two are better than one, that we want community, that we want to be part of something, that we want to feel connected, we want to belong. Would you agree that that would be generally true of life? I say generally because sometimes I, I just want to be on my own. Sometimes one is better than two. Amen. Okay, you don't believe me. I know you. You know, when there's one bowl of ice cream left, one is better than two. I have a secret spot in my house that I'm not going to let out because my children will find it where I hide the things that I want to eat because I have these ravaging individuals that live in my space. It's generally true that two are better than one. And society thinks about this. In Africa, particularly in the Southern African and East African context, we have this social construct called Ubuntu. Ubuntu is, is an African way of, of describing two is better than one. It's when, when we believe, as Dr. Dennis Kilama from Uganda puts it, my humanity is caught up in yours. I'm a person because of other people. I'm connected. I belong. Two is better than one. I'm not just one on my own, but I am who I am because of the people around me. It is this idea that social harmony is the highest good, that for a humanity to exist and and have the best possible life, it needs to involve social harmony. And so every cultural Grouping across the world in its major definitions and even in its more broken down specific definitions would have a way that they treat this idea of community, of two are better than one. In our African context, there's a lot of thought going into right now of how we are seemingly losing the sense of Ubuntu. Particularly in an urbanized African context, many are decrying the fact that Ubuntu is getting lost. There's a sense of togetherness, of two are better than one, that we're trying to figure out. Now, what does that look like in this modern day and age? Now, perhaps if you come from a a more westernized space, then you treat that idea of two better than one a bit differently. You have a different definition, a different expectation, a different view of how community is lived. Perhaps in some cultures in the world, when we talk about family, for instance, family is a a term that includes quite a lot of people. And then in other groupings, family is a very small grouping of people. Because we all come at this very differently. Our experiences are slightly from different angles. But it's important, as a writer, Yamakani, says, That in every context, every cultural context, every cultural tradition requires that the Christian either rethink their culture, redeem their culture, reject their culture, or renew their culture. Every one of us lives life with a certain cultural viewpoint. And it can be quite complex Particularly in a nation like South Africa, where we lend and borrow so much from different spaces. And it's constantly moving and reshaping itself. But I come at life with this certain expectation, way I view life. But I have to recognize that when I come to the Lord Jesus, I have to submit my culture. My expectations, my definitions, my narrative, my descriptions, I have to submit to the Lordship of Jesus. And that is true for every person from every culture. Because in every culture, there are things that need to be rethought when they come in contact with Jesus. Are you rethinking some of your cultural perceptions? As you are getting in contact with Jesus, and as you are being confronted with his truth, you go... Perhaps my expectation or my practice in this area needs to be rethought. And that's what a community of faith does. We're constantly rethinking. And the only hope for a diverse community like this to actually find unity and and real community is for us to all come and bow the knee before Jesus and say, I'm rethinking. I'm rethinking. I also need to say, Lord, what what needs to be redeemed from my culture? Because there are things in my culture that initially were perhaps good in that they reflected who God was. They reflected something of God's character, but they've become twisted. They've become abused and usurped. And now they don't reflect who God is, but they can still be redeemed. I can bring them back under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus. I can resubmit them, and that cultural practice or expression can actually become something that displays and communicates and expresses something of who God is. Sometimes, for instance, we have art, we have music, we have cultural expression, but it's been captured by culture and used for wrong things, but it can be redeemed, it can be brought back, it can be brought into a space of the light. So some things I need to rethink, some things I need to pray, how to redeem them. But there are also things that need to be rejected. There are things in, in all of our cultures that absolutely cannot be redeemed because they communicate the lie of Satan. And we need to understand and reject those. And many of you sitting here to me, listening to me talk at this moment or watching online, you are aware that you are sometimes struggling within your own family because your family has certain traditions and, and, and ways that they celebrate and do certain things. And as a Christian, you can no longer go along with that. And you're having to reject the practice without rejecting the family. And you have to find ways to show love and honor and respect to your family while not participating in some of the cultural expressions. Because some things are, they need to be rejected. You cannot live with them. And it becomes quite a tricky space sometimes. Which one is redeemable, which one must be rejected? But that's where a community of faith also really helps. And then the last thing is, some things need to be renewed. Because there are things that we can do new as the church. That we can can say the culture around us is going this way, but we're actually doing a new thing. And we're going the other way because we are renewing culture. And that's how we are the salt and the light. We're consistently submitting everything to the Lordship of Jesus. And so I want to request today that, or in this series as we're talking about community, that our ideas of community becomes one of those things that we surrender to the Lord Jesus. Because the challenge is, as we talk about community, every one of us comes at this topic with a thought pattern already ingrained in us. With its expectations, its rules, its clarifications, its categories, we come to community and we have an understanding of it already. And we have to all come and say, Lord Jesus, I surrender my understanding of community to you. Help me rethink community. Help me redeem what needs to be redeemed. Help me reject what needs to be rejected, and help me to renew community. Because in that way we can all be moving towards something beautiful. And again, I, I don't think we're going to achieve that on Earth. But if we're moving in the right direction under the Lordship of Jesus, we will be experiencing something of it already. He's the Lord. He's the Master. A guy by the name of Paul Tripp argued in a a book that he wrote. He said, we weren't created to be independent or self-sufficient. We were made to live in humble, worshipful, and loving dependency upon God, and in loving and humble interdependency with others. What does that mean, Lord? Help me understand what interdependency with others looks like. Because my culture has a whole lot to say about that. And perhaps some of it needs to be rethought. Some needs to be rejected. Some needs to be redeemed. And some needs to be renewed. So if we go back to Ecclesiastes 4, what the writer here does for us is he takes a very practical look at life. And he says, two are better than one. Community is something you need. And he's going to share four experiences with us where he's observed that community is really helpful. So he's very practical. And I want to highlight these four for us quickly. In verse, the the second half of verse nine, he, he highlights the first common human experience, general human experience, where two is better than one. And he says this, in work, two is better than one. In getting the job done, two is better than one. He writes this, he says, because they have a good return for their labor. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. How many of you are humble enough to admit that you need other people if you want to get something done? About half of you. Now, if you're sitting next to your spouse and you did not raise your hand, don't be surprised if you get a funny question on the way home. Hey? I mean, there's not a lot in life that I can actually achieve all on my own. I know we have this philosophy of if you want something done right, do it yourself. Amen? You're, hey, you're all sitting there like so holy. Not us. I don't have any of that in my life. Yeah. But if you think about it, I can't even bring the bacon home without somebody else. Because I have no pigs. I need to go somewhere for so much in my life. Think about how much every day you depend on other people to get stuff done. I watch my children, they they do a lot of group work as they study, you know, it's this modern way of education is group work. And group work is fantastic when everybody's working. But how many of you know often group work is one person doing all the work while the rest is just coasting along and sharing in the marks? Group work is fantastic if every person owns their own responsibility and brings their gifting fully to bear. Then you get something that is better than what any of them individually could do. But it's part of our wrestle and our struggle as human beings. But the reality is there's something fantastic that gets unlocked. Unlocked in a synergy, in a powerful expression of being able to build things and and work and get more done, more reward for your labor when people can work together. And it's a skill that we have to learn and develop and grow in that I think begins with this humility, this humility of I need you. But a humility that comes with a humanity that says, I value you not just because of what you can do, but who you are as a person. And there comes something beautiful that works together. I mean, we see it sometimes, for instance, very practically here in the life of the church. Sometimes we, you, know, you come across a person or they come to you and they, they desperately need help in some way. Perhaps it's something like a person struggling with depression. Now the best way to help that person is if a bunch of people work together if it's real clinical you know struggle diagnose real problem then what really helps is if the spiritual leaders do their part do the prayer do the scriptural encouragement walk with the person pray at the same time the professionals like psychologists psychiatrists counselors do their part and they own their part of it and they walk with that person and give them that the level of advice that they need. At the same time, there's a family that does their part and, and helps and supports. At the same time, there's a community that embraces, that, that creates an environment of practical support when needed and sometimes just encouragement and a sense of you're not alone and belonging. And when, when we see all of those together, beautiful work gets done in the longer term health of, of people. Two are better than one because they get more reward for their labor. Lord, teach us to work together. Isn't it even amazing that God himself, who has all the power in the universe, says, I want you to be my co-laborers. I'm not going to get this done on my own. I want to work with you. There's something kingdom in learning to work with people. Getting it done right isn't always the most important thing. Sometimes the kingdom, and on your front line, can you become a person that actually changes the culture of your workspace? Because you become a facilitator, a person that mobilizes a place where people can work together. Because you have a humility, you have a generosity in you by the Spirit of God. You have an understanding for people that the Spirit of God gives you. So you can be somebody that just moves things to a next level. The second thing he says is not only in work are two better than one, but in failure two are better than one. In Ecclesiastes four verse ten, he says, "If either of them falls down, one can help the other up, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up." How many of you can say, "Amen"? I know from experience that that is true. Because newsflash, people, you are going to fail. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not meaning that demeaning or in any way. It's just you're human. That means you have limitations in your capacity and capabilities, and because of that, you're going to fail. And it also means you have some problems, some brokenness, some sin in your life, and because of that, you are going to fail. It's going to happen. And how many of you know when we fail and there's people around to help us, it is so much better. Sometimes you've had somebody close to you fail, and you've been able to help them up. But my experience is that we struggle when we fail to actually be helped. You know, it's part of what we do in church leadership. Is our jobs are to help people through many different of their lives' experiences. But sometimes you, you have a person that you know and care about and you love them, and they fail. Sometimes it's because they've been doing something quietly and secretly for a long time and nobody knew about it until the day it explodes. And it suddenly becomes a very visible failure. And now you have this person and they've literally, it's like they've fallen. Here they are lying next to me. They have fallen. And so I come up to them and I say, Yo, I'm so sorry to see this happen in your life. Can I help you? And they're lying down there and they're looking, I haven't failed. I'm not fallen. What are you talking about? I've just decided that I'm going to live life from a different perspective. You know, who said that life has to be lived vertical? I'm going to live life horizontal from now on. How dare you judge me and look down upon me because I am just lying here. How dare you call this failure? I'm not failing. I'm just, you know, going through life differently now. And you're going, no, my friend, you have failed. You're not supposed to be lying in the dirt. That's not... God's plan for you. Come, let me help you. No, stop it now. You're just making me feel bad. Ever been in a situation like that? I've been in a few. I'm still in some. And it's frustrating at those moments because you're going. It's not that difficult. You can get up and move on. But as people we sometimes get to places where we would rather live life horizontally and lie down and just suffer and just be in our failure than having to actually get up. And that's why we need people. Because I, I, I love, I remember when I was young already, I read this statement where somebody said, righteous people, I wrote it in front of my first Bible, righteous people aren't people that never fail. They are people that just get up one more time than they've fallen. They keep getting up. And sometimes the hardest thing in life is i failed, is to actually admit I have failed so that somebody can help me get up again and say I'm sorry. Those three words are so valuable in life. I am sorry. How many times do parents have to say that to children? I had to get my kids together the other day, just last week, and say to them, I am so sorry. I missed something with you. I just want to say, I'm sorry. And I explain to them my struggle and, and so that they can help me. Now, when I say help me, I'm not making my problem their responsibility. It's my responsibility. I own it. But I have a humility to go, I need help. I'm sorry. You see, sometimes we've fallen. And the first thing we have to do so that we can get up is just say, to somebody, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I failed. And then sometimes it's a little bit more work than that because I have to go to this person and say, I'm so sorry, I failed you. Then I have to go to this person and say, I'm so sorry, I failed you. I'm so sorry, I failed you. And I have to perhaps go to a number of people and sometimes I might even have to say, listen, I know my failure cost you dearly. And by God's grace, I'm gonna work and try and find a way to, to, find a way to restore to you what you have lost because of my failure. And that's hard work. And sometimes we don't want to do that. But can I tell you, that's the privilege of community. I have such appreciation for people that failed in community and stayed in that community and corrected their failure and grew in that community. I have appreciation for the humility, the strength of the person, as well as the community, the grace of the community. You see, our way of dealing with it nowadays is I fail in this community, so I leave them and I go and try and repair it in another community. Now, there are times when that's right. But that's not always. Sometimes the greatest growth for the whole community and the individual is right here where I've made my mistakes, I'm going to fix them. And there's something beautiful and redemptive 2 Corinthians 5, for instance, talk about a situation like that. But I have to be humble enough to say, listen, people, I'm going to fail from time to time. I'm gonna try and do it not as often as I can, but I'm gonna, it's gonna happen. And I'm so thankful that I'm part of a community that can sometimes help me see my failure when I don't even think I've failed so that I can recover. But there's a humility The third thing is not only are two better than one in work or in failure, but also in hardship. In Ecclesiastes 4.11, he says, also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? How many of you know this world can be cold? Not just in Pretoria in June. In general, this world is tough. Sometimes through no fault of your own, because of events outside of your control, things happen and life is hard. Sometimes you get retrenched and you were so good at your job. It's not your fault. Sometimes you get a diagnosis and it's not your fault. Sometimes we get a diagnosis, it's our own fault. But a lot of the time people get bad diagnosis from the doctor, it's not their fault. It's just life. We live in a broken world. And sometimes it's cold. And I'm trying to figure out a way how to live in this cold world. And Solomon here says, well... Two are better than one. If life is hard, perhaps community is part of what helps you deal with it. Right now in South Africa, we're experiencing life increasingly, generally. I know everybody's got different experiences. But in general in our nation, the people that are studying these things are telling us life is becoming harder in our nation. And the anxiety levels of people are actually at a dangerous level. As human beings, we become anxious when we feel like we have no control. When we're doing the right things, but we're not getting the right results, it produces anxiety. We also feel anxious when, and I'll talk about this just now a bit more, but when there's no recourse for us. If somebody does something to harm me, and I can't, do anything with that and go somewhere to an authority that will actually look at my problem and solve it, it causes anxiety. And all of those are conditions for trauma. So they're saying that South Africans are going through a compounded period of trauma. We had stuff happening before load shedding, then we had load shedding, and now we've got, uh, not load shedding, uh, COVID, and now we've got load shedding, and, 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 and. And so we, life is tough. What do we do about that? What do we do in a nation and in a space where we sometimes feel like man alive? No matter what I do, it just doesn't seem to produce good results. And when bad things happen to me, I don't know where to go because it feels like just the authorities sometimes just don't care. It causes trauma. But one of the things that I think we all know is two is better than one. When we go through challenging times like that, it makes psychologically, they've done the tests and the studies, it significantly reduces, and I think Nemi mentioned it actually in the announcements today, it significantly reduces your anxiety levels if you just know you're with somebody. I've told you the story possibly perhaps, but I had this experience once where I I love scuba diving. So we went scuba diving off Sudwana once years ago. And you know when you go scuba diving, it's an environment where there's lots that can go wrong, so you're a bit vulnerable, And so what you normally do is you're a group that has what they call a dive master, a person who's in control of the whole thing and that looks after everybody and makes sure everybody's equipment's right and conditions and that knows the area, that can orientate, navigate, take you to the right places, all of that. But then they also pair you up in what they call buddies. So you have a buddy because you have to look after each other. So before you submerge, you check each other's equipment, you're always aware of each other. You swim together underwater, everything. So this particular day, we were diving, the sea was a bit rough and um, the conditions weren't ideal and what you do in a conditions like that is you you know, you know, dive off the boat. If you're diving off the boat, I think we were diving about 18 meters which doesn't sound a lot but it's quite deep in the water and uh, so we fell off the boat and then what the dive master says, once everybody has gathered themselves on the surface, you empty your buoyancy compensator and you start sinking and then when you sank, everybody doesn't sink at the same pace and at the same time, when you get to the bottom, we will normally submerge over a sandy period so that we don't disturb any coral. But when you get to the bottom, everybody goes n- knees, on their knees on, this, on the bottom of the, the seabed and just wait there for everybody. And then the dive master will check everybody's okay. And then he'll give the okay sign. And he'll say, let's swim in that direction. You buddy up and off you swim. So we did all of that. So I was on the seabed on my knees waiting for people. And suddenly my mask got loose. And I was trying to put it on, and it just went, popped off my face. Now, I don't know what happens in the movies, but in the movies, when somebody doesn't have a mask, they all see so nicely. That's not the case. (laughs) 18 meters under the ocean, your mask comes off. You cannot see a thing. And this amazing involuntary response, your breathing picks up, (gasps) (gasps) and your little gauge goes (gasps) because you're sucking air now, because you are anxious. And I was reasonably experienced, but in that moment, I was trying to fix my mask, and I couldn't get it fixed because I couldn't see, and the anxiety was increasing. <gasps> and I could feel this anxiety. And everything in me just wanted to swim up to the top. But now I knew, don't. So, so my friend comes, and he comes and he takes the masks out of my, my mask out of my hand because he can see, so he can fix it. But then he does the most amazing thing. Not only did he take my mask, but he took my hand and he put my hand on his forearm so that while he was fixing my mask, I felt his presence. And guess what happened? In that instant when I took hold of his forearm, my breathing went. My whole body relaxed because suddenly I'm not alone. Life is cold, but I'm with somebody. And let me tell you, None of us know how cold life can get until it happens to us. But it makes all the difference. Now let me, let me just give me a little bit of leeway here today. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe that every problem I have, I can bring to the Lord in prayer. I believe he hears my prayers and he answers my prayers. I believe in miracles. I believe in praying for the sick and letting them get healed. I believe in all of that. But can I tell you, sometimes you end up in a space where it feels that God is not answering your prayer. I've prayed for enough people over long periods of time that have struggled with an illness only to bury them eventually. Where you go through those battles of, Lord, where are you? Where you feel like your prayers aren't answered. Now we know God answers every prayer. But how many of you felt, we've spoken about this last year in our prayer series. How many of you felt like, is God around? Has God left? Is God occupied somewhere else? What's going on? Sometimes you've lost your job and you're praying and you're crying and you're desperately beating like your hand against God's chest and it's just quiet. It's just silent. Sometimes as Christians, we've done everything we know to do. We've prayed every prayer. We've quoted every scripture. We've sowed every seed. We've been doing everything we can. And yet, the change that we need doesn't happen. The breakthrough doesn't come. And that's real. You know what I've... Just over the last couple of years, I've been through some journeys like that, where I've been praying, crying out for God, and I find myself in a space where, where I sometimes get to a place where I feel like I don't want to talk to God anymore, because He's not hearing me. But then the Spirit just keeps drawing you, and I keep praying, because I'm, you know, like, I don't know why, it's like, Lord, I'm going to just keep going, just going to do the right thing, I've like I don't know. And I get angry, I get frustrated, I get all of those feelings. But I just keep. And then this weird thing happens somewhere along the way. Where you find yourself having progressed, almost walked through something. And you come to a space where the things you've prayed about hasn't changed yet. But you experience something of God's presence. Something of God's goodness that you never could have experienced if the prayer was answered. I I don't know how to explain that all and I don't, you know. I'm careful with this. I believe I should pray in every situation and trust God for a miracle, for something supernatural. But the same God that I trust for the supernatural is the God that I trust when the supernatural doesn't happen, when the answer doesn't come, when the solution doesn't present itself. If I'm dying while I'm praying for something, it's the same God I'm trusting. That's the only way I can live. And I wanna tell you that that's where a community is so wonderful. Because not only does a community come alongside when, when life is hard and just allow us to put our hand on something tangible and say, You're not alone, which sometimes, by the way, is what God does. But a community also helps me see others that have gone through things that I fear and I trust I, can, I never want to go through that. But I see them go through it without losing hope, without that sense of utter. Collapse. I see their pain. I see their struggle. But I see their faith. I see their resolve. And it strengthens me. I don't, I don't think we must try and create a space, a sense in our community. where If you're part of this community, if you have a problem, we're going to pray for you and it's all going to be all right. How many of you know that's not real? It's not real, people. I'm so sorry to say that. Now, the challenge is sometimes God does the miracle. Like God released Peter from prison, but John the Baptist got beheaded. Now, what we do with stories like that as people is we wanna find a nice narrative that will solve that conundrum for us. So we find some reason why John failed and why he didn't get saved from prison, and some reason why Paul's faith was greater and he did get saved from prison. Can I tell you, it does not work like that. There are situations where that can happen, but there are many situations where it's not a linear understanding that creates that. And I don't wanna create insecurity with you. I know you've got hard lives and tough lives, and perhaps you've just come to church this morning to say, if somebody can just pray with me, my problem will be solved. And we're gonna pray for you, and we trust God for your problem to be solved. But can I tell you, even if your problem doesn't get solved, God loves you, and he is faithful. And he has got good things in store for you. And read Hebrews 11, how many of the heroes of the faith died without ever seeing the promise come to pass. But guess what? They're living in the fulfillment of their promise today, where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, full life. And that's what community does. Community, two is better than one in hardship, and then the last one is two is better than one in safety. Because like I said earlier, Sometimes there are people that are out there to harm you. We saw the crime statistics released this week, didn't we? We forget that by every statistic, there's not only a victim, there's a perpetrator. There's somebody that for some reason in that event went out to harm somebody. Whether that's gender-based violence, whether that is, you is know, white-collar crime, whether that is house robbery, somebody for some reason made a decision to say, I'm going to go and harm somebody. And it's to the scale in our nation where I I think we are realistic to know that our police and our judicial system aren't going to be able to deal with it. It leaves us traumatic. Traumatic. It leaves us traumatic. How horrible is it when you feel that sense of somebody's doing something against you and you don't know where to turn to address the problem? Now, I'm not saying that the police can't do a lot and I've had encounters with police people that are fantastic, that goes the extra mile, that works a situation, that, but the scale of it is just too much. But two are better than one. Two are better than one. Because when I am, have had something happen to me, I'm so grateful. You know, one of the first things I'm grateful for, when another human being does something to harm me, I've got people in my life that balances the story out. That I can turn to and say, thank you, that in you I know kindness and grace. That can feel my pain with me and help me and keep me sane and keep me reminding to forgive, keep me reminding to hope, to not let this thing define me. If I'm on my own, I don't think I'll do it. But I think we all understand that. Last verse. But then he ends with this little bit of a dogleg turn that he suddenly makes. All along he's been saying two are better than one. Two are better than one, two are better than one. Then he concludes his thought with this. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I thought we're talking about two. Now suddenly we're talking about three. What's going on? Because what is he doing? He's taking our human experience, our human need, our common general life, and then he's adding something to it. And he says, not only are you trying to survive with two people, which already helps a lot, but let me tell you, there's a third. And that third actually makes all the difference. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's coming and he's with you. And sometimes life makes no sense, but Jesus is with you. Sometimes there's no answer for the wrestle, but Jesus is with you. Sometimes there's no quick solution or no solution that even seems to be coming on the horizon but Jesus is with you and that's where our ultimate hope is and so that as we've been saying on this series our hope is not in community as we define it but in that which is what Jesus defines so I go back to where I started we want to say Lord help us rethink how to live in a context like this We need to be an expression of the kingdom in a context like ours where it's getting harder and harder. We can be a kingdom expression. We can be a community that puts out our hand to people around us that are traumatized and suffering and take their hands and put them and say, here's something tangible. Here's something, hold on. And sometimes those people aren't going to find Jesus before they find us. And through us they'll find Jesus. Sometimes they'll come and they'll cling on. And, and they may be those people that are lying on the ground and saying, don't stop judging me. Stop telling me I've, I've failed. I haven't failed. I'm just living life from a different perspective. And we're just not gonna give up on them. Just gonna say, well, I'm here. I'm gonna love you the best I can. I can't come down there and lie down next to you because then we both need somebody else to come and help us. And I know it may irritate you that I'm standing next to you because that reminds you that you should actually also be standing but you'd rather want to lie down. And I'm sorry that that causes that feeling in your life but there will come a day when you will need to have somebody stand next to you. Is that okay? Won't you stand with me? Worship team, you guys don't have to join me. I'm gonna end. So I want to ask Just two simple things. Firstly, allow the Lord into your need for belonging. Into your need for community. Into your need for two is better than one. Say, Lord, I bring that to you. I think I know what I need, but I'm going to ask you to show me. Number one. Number two. And Lord, help me put you at the center of my whole life. Three is better than one. Can we pray? Lord, I, I pray this morning by your Holy Spirit. I, I, I want to pray for a people in this room, those are online and even broader than that. The people of this nation. Lord, we recognize this anxiety level of our people. This fear of where is this all going? That there's so many places where we just don't know where the answers are gonna come from. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a community that turns to you and finds its hope, its security, its stability in you firstly, so that we will not react to this context, but that we will give life to this context, that we will breathe revival into the, into the dry and dead places in Jesus' name. On our front lines, Lord, that we will be people that say, no, God has not left us. We may not understand how everything's going to work out, but we've got a hope Come Holy Spirit, you know what we need and we surrender our need to you. And I pray, Lord, for a beautiful, practical, real, tangible expression of a community of faith that walks the difficult and the wonderful journeys together, that laugh and celebrate together and cry together, that are fully embracing this this reality of the world we live in, yet living with our hope secured for the future. And we can love each other. And we can love the world. And I pray for that. Come, Holy Spirit. And the only way we know how that's possible is by the working of the Holy Spirit among us. So again, as we did last week, we say, come fill us, Holy Spirit. Come fill us. Fill us with the beauty of your kingdom. Of knowing you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Can I encourage you? Whenever you've just faced the, the challenge of the, these four things that we've said, just take a breath and say, take a breath and say, fill me, Holy Spirit. Is that okay? Just simple like that. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for joining us online. Those of you that are interested in community groups, please remember that you can go and sign up for those. Debbie will meet those that wants to find out more about our community in the Connect Lounge. If you want prayer this morning, if you want somebody to just come and just lay hands on you, just be that contact point, that presence of God. If you're here today and you have to say, Lord, I want to give my life to Jesus, come and our ministry team will be in the front and they'll pray with you. But may the Lord bless you. May you go in His strength and His grace, uh, into this week. Amen.